0: The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Friday, January 18th, 2019. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca, and it is the beginning of the end. Of course, we may have heard that before.
1: This is the day that everything changed. We begin with
0: the bombshell. The beginning of the end? The beginning of the end. 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 That video assembled by super deluxe, Supercuts. It does go on for quite some time in a similar vein. So those events, that beginning of that end was December 2017. We've had other beginnings of other ends, the Comey firing, the first Mueller indictments that came down, the Manafort prosecution, even Charlottesville were all dubbed the beginning of the end. But this, what we're talking about here is this report from BuzzFeed that Donald Trump pushed former lawyer Michael Cohen to testify this, we are told, this is the real, this is the new, this is the bona fide beginning of the end. But wait, wasn't the raid on Michael Cohen, wasn't that, didn't that set it off? Wasn't that the beginning of the end? No, no, no. That was the antecedent to the beginning of the end. Wait, wait, wait. Well, that was the antecedent to the beginning of the end. What about when Michael Cohen flipped? Remember Trump and lawyer Rudy Giuliani tried to praise him to keep him in the fold? Are you concerned at all that Michael Cohen's
1: going to cooperate with prosecutors? No, I expect that he is going to cooperate with them. I don't think they'll be happy with it because he doesn't have any incriminating evidence about the president or himself. The man is an honest, honorable lawyer and... But then one month later... I don't see how he has any credibility. I mean, This is basically if you had a trial, and there won't be a trial here, but if you had a trial, you'd say, well, which lie do you want to pick? You want to pick the first lie, the second lie, or maybe some new lie. There's nobody that I know that knows him that hasn't warned me that if he's back is up against the wall, he'll, he'll lie like crazy because he's lied all his life. So that,
0: when the legal team turned on Cohen after Cohen turned on them, wasn't that the beginning of the end? Ah, ha, ha, ha. No. What that was, is that was the outward signal to the antecedent of the beginning of the end. Okay, well, that's just when we knew about the White House figuring out that Cohen had turned on Trump and had the goods on him. The goods being an instruction to lie under oath. So what about that? Aha! What that is, is the proximate cause of the outward signal that clued us into the antecedent to the beginning of the end. But wait, wait, wait. So Trump... BuzzFeed is reporting from multiple sources. Trump instructs Cohen to lie under oath. And by the way, instructing a witness to lie under oath that uh, twice in the last 50 years has led to impeachment charges. But that act was occasioned by Trump's decision to pursue deals with Moscow and then lie about those deals. So really, isn't that decision, I'm still going to try to get some hotels in Moscow, isn't that really the beginning of the end? Oh, no, 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 no. That was the trigger to the proximate cause, to the outward signal that clued us into the antecedent of the beginning of the end. So then what you're saying is the entire campaign doing trying to do business deals at the same time that you're running for president. That that really was the beginning of the end to campaign for president as you also try to line your pockets. No, sir. No, sir. What that was is that was the necessary and sufficient condition that triggered the foundation for the proximate cause to the outward signal to the antecedent of the beginning of the end. I mean, but the guy's been trying to build in Moscow for years. I mean, look at the Miss Universe pageant. I mean, it's just hard to get our heads around that. Well... I personally like to think of that as the prequel to the triggering, to the foundation, to the proximate cause, to the outward signal, to the antecedent, to the beginning of the end. So you're saying this has all been baked in the cake for a while now. Yes, yes. What I'm saying is Trump needed to lose. The only way that he could pursue both his business interests in Moscow and the national interest was to never take an oath to act in the national interest. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Him swearing on that Bible, vowing to act in any interest other than his own, that was the real beginning of the end. And by the way, what are we to think of a possible Pence administration? Can you even get your head around that? Let me give you a framework. That will be a reboot to the prequel, to the triggering, to the foundation, to the proximate cause, to the outward signal, to the antecedent of the beginning of the end. On the show today, I spiel about the anger machine, a Twitter exchange that got me a little down. But first, he is still the congressman from Iowa's 4th District, though his fellow Republicans have stripped him of important committee assignments. How do the people of Iowa now think about Steve King? We will talk to a journalist who has been covering the man for his entire career. If you look at the Wikipedia page for Storm Lake, Iowa, under the Notable People section, second to last, Steve King, notable Iowa congressman. That is how they identify him. But second from the top is Art Cullen, editor of the Storm Lake Times, won the 2017 Pulitzer Prize for editorial writing. We couldn't get Steve King on. We didn't ask him. We do have Art Cullen here, who's been covering Storm Lake native Steve King for pretty much all of his professional life. Hello, Art. How are you? Great. Thanks, Mike. So who was Steve King to you before he became this really notable, I'm not going to say notable, notorious white national apologizing and perhaps quite embarrassing congressman from the 4th District of Iowa?
1: Well... (laughs) I knew Steve King back when he was a state senator, and he was a dirt mover by trade. He did uh, federal conservation work uh, to put in terraces and the like. And his idea was to dredge Storm Lake, and actually we worked pretty closely with him back when he was in the Iowa legislature to get money appropriated to dredge Storm Lake from all this uh, sediment that's come in from surrounding farm fields. And we got along pretty well. And then he just went off on, uh, back when he was still in the state Senate, he went off on this thing against gays and Latinos, immigrants. And he found that it really had some spark to it, and it kind of just energized his entire congressional career. When he ran for Congress then, he ran as this right-wing say-anything, kind of guy long before donald trump ever thought about running for president
0: so he like all humans puts out some stimulus to the world gets some stimulus back says to himself oh there's something there this is working and keeps riding it i mean basically the feedback he got while an elected official in your region or from chiron and later the entire uh, area of northwest iowa it was telling him keep doing it steve it's working
1: Absolutely, yeah. He was getting elected by double digits, and uh, Democrats uh, didn't know, haven't known what to do until the last election cycle. And that's when bachelor, former semi-pro baseball pitcher named J.D. Schulton went around the district in a uh, beat-up Winnebago camper, Named Sioux City Sue and ran against King and came within three points of him, and the entire Republican establishment freaked out.
0: Has Steve King become more extreme as he's uh, been a member of Congress, or has the national media just noticed it more?
1: The national media has just noticed it more. He was he uh, sued Governor Tom Vilsack while still in the Iowa legislature over employing gays in state government, and. He made a comment, what, maybe a year or so ago, about how he doesn't expect to meet gays in heaven. Yeah. Now, you know, uh, Iowa has just come around to gay marriage in 2010. And, and uh, you know, a lot of people, including President Obama's thoughts, had changed on gay marriage. But Steve King has never changed. <laughs> and uh, he was making disparaging remarks about Latinos, you know, 20 years ago. And everybody just rolled with it because it was just Steve being Steve, the straight shooter.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, 20 years ago, it was also seen as this viable wedge issue that Republicans would use. And part of Karl Rove's strategy was to put it on the ballot to get people to come out and vote for his candidates. I mean, it was a totally different issue. And I don't know, maybe racial sensitivity was, but I was paying attention then. I think that I don't know. I think that if you said as many outright endorsements or quasi-endorsements of white nationalism, even then it would have caused quite a kerfuffle, or, or am I misremembering?
1: No, he was making these very same comments about the superiority of Western civilization 15 years ago, Right. talking about nationalism 15 years ago. He's been talking about these same things the entire way through. And we have been reporting him, reporting on this. In our first endorsement, we called it our anti-endorsement. We've done it nine times now. The headline is always our anti-endorsement. We say, we don't care if Attila the Hun is running against Steve King. Uh, We're for Attila the Hun. So what
0: do you think changed this time around such that he actually has been a bit punished by his own caucus?
1: J.D. Scholten came within three points of him, and they said, okay... It's one thing to have a xenophobe race baiter in Congress or the White House, for that matter. They're all over the Republican caucus. Tom Cotton, for one, and uh, Mitch McConnell for another. But uh, what changed is that, J- that it- he apparently was so radical that J.D. Shulton nearly beat him. Mm-hmm. And this is an a, a R-plus-11 district. So that he, there's no way a Democrat should come within three points of a Republican here.
0: So it's the electoral vulnerability that woke his own party up and, exactly. and, and made him seem more like a liability than someone they had to countenance and live with.
1: Right. And a lot of people think that Iowa is necessarily uh, racist, because of Steve King or Northwest Iowa and in fact poll after poll shows that about three fourths of voters in the fourth district support a legal pathway to citizenship and support full citizenship for dreamers. So it's it's easy to say, oh, they they're just a bunch of racists out there but in fact there's a whole lot of other issues, number one being abortion, that drive Steve King's support. it people around here Really don't think he's racist. They appreciate the fact that he's flipping the bird to the power centers in New York, Hollywood, D.C. And because we've been we've been wanting to flip him the bird for the last since William Jennings Bryan was uh, running for president in 1896.
0: Yeah. But there does come a time when and and we've seen this. I mean, a lot of constituencies rally around an iconoclastic figure. And but then there comes a time when that figure becomes a source of embarrassment and it's no longer cute. And the perception is, you know, he's reflecting poorly and inaccurately upon us. Has that gone on in your neighborhood, in your community?
1: No. Steve King has not broken into the Joe McCarthy sweat yet. We just interviewed a former Buena Vista County Republican chairwoman, Carol Hunziker, and she thinks Steve King is the nicest guy in the world. He shows up to benefit for people who've had strokes or heart attacks. And uh, he gives American flags to fallen soldiers' families. Yeah. So they think he's just a really nice guy.
0: Well, what you're painting is a picture of a person who's, for all his many flaws is at least a decent retail politician.
1: He's a very good retail politician. He should not be underestimated. The GOP elite found a candidate to put up against him by the name of a state senator named Randy Feenstra, uh, who is just as conservative. He says he's four square with Donald Trump, Feenstra does. And they gave him a $100,000 ante to play with. And they're going to find it's going to take a lot more than $100,000 to unseat Steve King.
0: Mm -hmm. So how will this play out? Uh, Does he have a power center? Does Feenstra have backers? How do you see this?
1: Yes, Feenstra comes from a region of the state that is ultra-conservative. It's populated by a lot of uh, very conservative Dutch reform communities and in that cluster of counties in the extreme northwest corner of the state about eighty percent of the district's republican vote comes from about five counties out of thirty nine and so it's very 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 red up there and they like feenstra but they also like king Mm -hmm. so feenstra is well known in that very extreme corner of the state but he's not very well known throughout the rest of the district and steve king is much beloved by the Trump Republican base. This is Trump's party, not Randy Feenstra's party.
0: But do you think the fact that, so let's say Feenstra and King will have mostly the same views and commit to mostly the same votes, it's just that Feenstra will phrase his opinions more temperately than King. Does that help him or hurt him in your district?
1: I think it hurts him because the reason people vote for Donald Trump and Steve King is because they'll blurt anything out that comes out of their mouth. They have no filter, and people love it. People love it when he takes on China, even if he's cutting two bucks off a bushel of soybeans that you're growing. But they like the fact that he's blunt and that he'll take a shotgun and point it right at your forehead. They consider that straight talk.
0: And does there come a time when, is is it maybe a generational thing, when they begin to think of what he says is not worth it or embarrassing?
1: Yes, the time has come. Yeah, and uh, that three-point spread tells me the time has come. And Tom Harkin, a former U.S. Senator from Iowa, and Berkeley Bedell, a former very popular Democratic congressman from this district, won in 1974 after having uh, run previously. So they ran in 1972 and lost, came back in 74 and won in the Watergate wave. And the same thing is going to happen here. Shulton lost narrowly in a midterm election. He's going to come back, and there's going to be a, a reckoning, because there's um, Iowa voters may accept anti-immigrant screeds, but they do not accept dishonesty and lying. And Trump is an inveterate liar, and King is wedded to him at the hip.
0: Yeah by the way, this is just a thought I had when he explained how he meant uh, in the quote to the New York Times, how he meant that how did Western civilization become a dirty word, not how did white supremacy become a dirty word? I, to some extent, and not that he deserves any benefit of the doubt, but I kind of believed him because he hadn't, he had known enough not to publicly champion the phrase white supremacy. He did some toe touches with nationalism, but I've never heard him say white supremacists are great, but he would always talk about Western civilization. And he's
1: also used the word nationalism quite a bit, but he never says white nationalism. Right.
0: So he knows, he knows the dog whistles. He knows how to phrase it. So to some extent, I kind of thought that the quote that tripped him up, if he had a chance to look at it before it went out, he would put in some periods or commas or make clear what he had meant.
1: Yes, that's exactly right, and he's, he's always been talking about Western civilization uh, as if the wheel had been invented in London, England or something. Right. And he'll, he has had public uh, photo ops with Latinos that he has helped through various problems, through constituent service, and uh, to show that he's not anti-immigrant. And so that, you know, it confuses the picture for a lot of people who can't see through it.
0: One last question or thing to talk about is, knowing that Democrats don't like King, how vociferous should Democratic candidates be? How much of an issue should they make Steve King as they try to get the Democratic nomination first in Iowa?
1: I think that, uh, to me, anyway, that Steve King and Donald Trump personify today's Republican Party no matter what the spinmeisters want to put on it. And so I think it is important to take it on directly. And I think that's why Elizabeth Warren launched her campaign here in Storm Lake, because she wants to make a point about where Steve King is coming from. Her, her announcements were all made in Steve King's front yard.
0: Art Cullen is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and editor and co-owner of the Storm Lake Times. And Art Cullen is also the author of Storm Lake, which uh, we interviewed him about a couple months ago. Art, thanks so much for doing this.
1: Thank you, Mike. I appreciate it.
0: And now the spiel. When they debuted the anger machine, they knew not to call it that. No one would turn on an anger machine if they said, this is the anger machine. So they called it an information machine, a connectivity machine, a timeline. And we liked it because it gave us a dopamine hit, a rush, and then we felt a little crash, and then the lash. It empowered the powerless though. It gave them voice. It gave voice to those who didn't have one. But then it gave voice to thought they needed one, or a louder one. Maybe gave voice to those who didn't need one, but now they had one, and not just one. Immobilized mobilized masses, mobs even. Giving voice, think about giving voice. It's treated as some unambiguous good. But everyone who has ever spoken a threat, pronounced a fatwa, ushered a calumny, or said a slur, did it via voice. Now, we all know the anger machine. Twitter is its official name. Acts. How it acts. It's six mobs. It fans flames. Not always. Not only. But it does do that. Not convinced? Twitter has become a punchline meaning awfulness. In the way that DMV meant lethargy and hospital food meant bland, Twitter has come to mean a stand-in for the locus of toxicity. Personally, I like Twitter. I really do. I think it's more good than bad. If we sat, and did a one of those dial surveys, and we always dialed things on Twitter that were making us happy or things that weren't, I really do believe mine would mostly be in the happy range. I read it, and I find a bunch of stories that I, I wouldn't have read but for Twitter. I see some basketball plays that I would not have seen. I came across this great commercial for AeroMexico, Here's how it works. They go, they survey some Southerners, Southerners not particularly sympathetic to Mexico, and then they take DNA tests of them and give them discounts based on how Mexican they are.
1: You're 22% Mexican. That's bullshit. That is bullshit. So you get 22% off to fly to Mexico. Oh, come on out.
0: Seriously? Of course, how I process that and how I remember it is I saw a great Aero Mexico ad, not... Twitter supplied me and served me up a great Aero Mexico ad. Most of the good of Twitter gets taken for granted. The bad, that is ascribed to Twitter per se. That said, there are some things Twitter does really poorly. In real life, IRL, there's such a thing as feedback. And through feedback, through reading a room, through eye contact, you could sometimes discern that your point is landing poorly that your audience isn't into it, that maybe you should change and improve the thing you're saying or arguing or even how you think and conceive of this point. Yeah, Twitter has this thing called the ratio. It's a marginally useful idea, but the ratio is often just the jeers of strangers. Just as we have lost the ability to disagree in general as a society, Twitter has served to help rob us of the realization, oh my God, my argument is backfiring. Case in point. The other day, Trevor Noah of The Daily Show was riffing on a topic in between segments. He does this, The Daily Show packages it as, let's talk this out. So this subject was the casting of Brian Cranston to play a paraplegic character in the film The Upside. Noah talked about the blowback in Casting Cranston because Cranston's not disabled. Noah talked about how, as Cranston himself pointed out, the craft of acting depends on playing people not like yourself. I'm not gonna lie, my first instinct because I love Bryan Cranston. I've, my first instinct immediately in was like, "Are you being serious? I was like, Guys, come on, man, we're going too far now." I was like, it's, "You can't like the actors. Actors are gonna act. You can't like the whole point of act. If we get everyone who is the thing to be the thing, then it's not acting. Then it's just a thing. It's a documentary. Like, like get the act. That's the whole point of acting." But the thrust of Noah's comments weren't saying that that is a good point or bad point, but saying that his eyes were opened a bit to a different perspective. He actually credited the anger machine. It turns out an actor in a wheelchair opined, you know, I never see good parts, this guy said. There are no good parts for characters in wheelchairs. And then every once in a while, one comes along, and guess what? It goes to Brian Cranston. Because he, this actor in the wheelchair, he'll never be cast as an able-bodied character. Because if you are a person in a wheelchair... And how many movies come along where the lead character is in a wheelchair? There's, there's virtually none. And I, I honestly, I, even myself, I was like, oh man, I have to try and understand that a little bit more. This is all fine as far as it goes. I personally think that a relatively huge Hollywood movie that depends on the casting of Brian Cranston in the lead role to drive box office to get funding, that's not the place to fight this battle. And also... Of all the Twitters, casting Twitter is not the most compelling Twitter to me. And by the way, there are lots of plays out there that cast disabled people. There was a version of The Glass Menagerie on Broadway that cast an actress with muscular dystrophy as Lori. There was a version of Oklahoma that cast an actress who relies on a wheelchair as Ado Annie. i tell you how that was, but I couldn't get tickets. No one could. It's a very, very good performance. So there is progress being made. In the meantime, I would say, let us not freeze the production of films that use able-bodied stars to play disabled characters. If the only way those films could exist on that level that we'd actually get to see them is to cast well-known, able-bodied stars because those are the stars we have. None of this so far, none of this is bad Twitter, but here's where the anger machine comes in. So a disabled activist took to Twitter. Her name is Annie Sagara, and she wrote, Thread, I'm really glad that Noah used his abled privilege and large platform to discuss disabled mimicry but I also have complicated feelings about disabled mimicry. And the winner is Meryl Streep, Sophie's Choice. What an what amazing achievement in Polish mimicry. And how she fooled us into thinking she is a concentration camp survivor. A glorious achievement, but also an evil woman. Mimicry. The, the Twitter user Annie Segura went on to say this. Your aha moment is, oh, disabled people are diverse. Oh, disabled actors exist. Oh, disabled actors are not bad actors because they are disabled. Oh, a disabled actor has the same chances of being an amazing actor as an abled actor. I think what she's doing is putting words into Trevor Noah's mouth and thoughts in his head that I don't think he'd ever think. She continues, I get that these are real realizations for many but I think it's important to try to have some respect for the dialogue, for the disabled activists already in the room. You're arriving late, and the tardiness has been a heavy burden. We've needed you to get in there for a while now. Well, he's here now. I guess not early enough. We have to have the right attitudes, and we have to have them at the right times. Defined as when? I guess any time at exactly the same time that the person on Twitter chastising us Adopted those views. Noah is literally, what he did in this segment was he talked through this realization that he had. Perhaps he did so rhetorically as a proxy for others in the audience so that they would say, oh yeah, never thought of it that way. As he said those exact words, maybe these people who are about to agree with you Maybe they need to be led a little bit. And there you have Sagara decrying the imperfection of this act, an act that could very well lead many people to agree with you. Segarra identified as a YouTuber, intersectional activist, queer, disabled, Latinx, she slash they, is literally engaged in an act of anti-empathy. Noah is trying to use his realization to spark the same in others who are an inch behind or six inches behind, but the activist who got there first is pulling up the ladder and saying too late. Now, the reason I know that this thread exists is because Twitter thrust it at me as a Twitter-moment-trending-happening-now sort of thing. Some human or algorithm made the choice that this perspective was one that needed to be shared, even though the same human or algorithm is constantly making a choice about what story will appeal to me now. Right now on my Twitter feed, this is the one that's supposed to be just for me, quote, Grey's Anatomy fans were left devastated by the first episode of 2019. My reaction, just so you know, is, Grey's Anatomy didn't go off the air in 2012. What, what's this new... Is this a Sabrina reboot situation? Nope. It's just not a trend for me, guys. And neither is this tweet thread taking Trevor Noah to the woodshed for imperfection. It's not really worth any of my time. Because no matter what act of allyship you perform there will always be an activist out there to say not good enough slash not soon enough and unless there is a real substance to that critique I find it to be a waste of my time I find it to be a waste of all of our times well you know what I don't know maybe I'm wrong maybe there's someone out there who is who is reading Annie Segarra's thread and said you know what I realize you're right. And then as soon as that person realized that, someone else jumped in to say, wait, you're just realizing it now? We knew this the whole time. How dare you have this realization? You should be ashamed that it didn't dawn on you earlier and more fully, or perhaps you should be a little bit ashamed that you weren't born agreeing already. I got to believe that the reason that the activist's ripping of Trevor Noah was thrust upon me was because Twitter knows it's divisive because it went right at Noah, and then other people went at her, and then I got annoyed, but I knew I was not about to criticize a disabled activist in the contextless void of Twitter. I'm sure many of you hearing this podcast now, where I have shared thousands and thousands of words on this, will still hear it as me being dismissive or wrong or cruel, and that's fine, but I'm telling you, if I tweeted anything like this, everyone would have found it to be hashtag bad opinion. And this is how the anger machine becomes the anger machine. At bottom, I believe Annie Segura's point to be a poor point. But she will find many like-minded individuals to tell her wonderful point. And you could say, good, she found her community. But I could say, no, she got agreement from like-minded individuals. There's nothing about highlighting this critique. I do not believe that changed a single mind. And maybe you could say, well, you can't change a mind on Twitter, except, except the very video we're talking about is how Trevor Noah's mind was changed by a tweet. And in doing so, and in saying that his mind was changed, he got, what's the word, dragged. And look, I want to be humble about this. I am able-bodied, and therefore I can't know exactly how someone else sees things or feels things. Maybe as a disabled person, you want a revolution. I get that. But I also get that dialogue, especially dialogue that starts at a point of contention so rarely gets elevated. And thus the anger machine churns on and no participant bends or is moved by all the interaction. And thus the anger machine churns on and no participant really bends or moves, just kind of gets ground up in the gears a little. And that's it for today's show. Gist producers Pierre bien and Daniel Schrader wonder, when did White Castle, when did White Chocolate, when did White Lines by Grandmaster Flash, when did those phrases become offensive? TJ Raphael, senior producer of Slate Podcasts, answers 1975, 2005, and 1983. The Gist, twice as sweet as sugar, twice as bitter as salt, and if you get hooked on us, baby, it's nobody else's fault. Freeze rock, um peru de peru du peru and thanks for listening. Thank you.